today we had Sid Nukerji on the Deep Dive podcast. Sid, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and, and being here. I'm excited to talk about all the things you're doing at Silicon Road and some of the innovations within retail. I think that would be interesting to a lot of our listeners. Well, thank you for having me. To kick this off, tell me a little bit about your beginning of your career, how you started and, and what you were doing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm an engineer by trade. Um, I started off as a uh, developer 25 years ago, a long time ago. And um, I worked for some large corporations, building large systems, maintaining large systems. And then uh, in 1994, uh, I founded a company called SPI. Uh, This company was an uh, IT company, services and products for retail e-commerce and CPG. And... So when you went into that, what really was in your mind when you founded that? Was it to get in there and and scale it? Or was it just something, another avenue to get out of a big corporate consulting gig? No, I wanted to make a difference. Uh, That was the biggest thing. And I wanted to make a difference in uh, two different ways, right? Two different areas. One Uh, In general, the whole consulting space at the time was very disorganized. Uh, It really did not have the disciplines that exist today in terms of process, uh, in terms of how consultants are treated. Uh, And so so that was one area that I wanted to try to change. And the other was retail e-commerce in general have always lagged behind in terms of innovation, uh, especially in technology, usually a generation or two behind And um, there is definitely a lot of opportunity there to have big impacts, make bigger impacts on the business uh, by some relatively small changes in technology. And so that was, those were the two ideas I was trying to address when I founded SPI. What were some of the steps? I know everybody's always interested in how you, how a business is, is scaled. What were some of the steps at the early stage that you began as you were growing and scaling your business? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Well, you know, one of the things that I always tell people that ask me that question is, it takes personal discipline by the founder and CEO. So in my case, I ran this business for over 20 years. And so my, my way of trying to make sure that I evolved and the business grew was by not doing the same things uh, this year that I did last year. Okay. So every year I worked really hard to work myself out of a job (laughs) and make sure that, you know, there is somebody else that is able to carry that mantle and which then allowed me to really take on other opportunities, other responsibilities, which obviously resulted in growth for the organization. So, uh, that is, that is one of the things. The other important thing, which people sometimes don't think about is, you know, the team. People know that you need a good team to win. I mean, that obviously goes without saying, you know, uh, for example, when you look at startups, you are looking at the founders, calibers and things like that. But uh, what people sometimes don't realize is that not everybody can handle a company at all its different stages of its evolution, right? Mm -hmm. So the person who helped you, you know, sell uh, you know, be the sales lead for your organization when you were less than 
five, say $5 million in revenue, may or may not be the guy who takes you to $50 million. Yeah, correct. And so, yeah, that's the, the other thing that I'd like people to remember. And that, that's, that's the key to, to really identify that, to, to see that as you're emerged, emerged in that during the time, you're scaling it, being able to identify groups or even yourself, are you eligible to be able to take this to the next level? Or do you need to find someone else more qualified to come in and, and take it to the next level? Absolutely. You know, and in fact, I think it's not, it's not rational. It's not logical to think that me as the founder of a company will be able to take it to all the different levels that my company will, will be going through if it really grows. And so therefore I have to be able to understand my limitations. And I would often joke that I surrounded myself with people that are way smarter than me. (laughs) Right. And that would be really, really in their functional areas. Right. So my, CFO, for example, you know, you know, he would, he would have done, you know, hundreds of M&A transactions. You know, my head of HR had led, you know, 10,000 person organizations and so on and so forth. So they were really, really good at what they did. That's, that's good. So you scaled it and ultimately what happened several years ago, you had an exit. How did that go down? What, what was that like going through through an acquisition of that that size, oh, that's yeah. <laughs> you are bringing back nightmares, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. I was just kidding. <laughs> so, yeah. So first of all, um, when I was growing the company, I really had, or I didn't even know how to go and raise money, and so I my equity table was very clean. My cap table only had me on it, me and my family, and um, I didn't have any debt on the balance sheet. So that really helped me out, right? From point mm-hmm. wow. of yeah, how good my exit was. Um, so I started off by involving a PE company first, and I sold the majority uh, share, and they did what what is called a leveraged buyout. Mm-hmm. So where you get a substantial portion of the company for uh, value of the company in exchange for giving up not that much uh, of the equity, and uh, followed it up with working with this private equity company and my team. And we eventually sold my company to a very large IT services provider called Cognizant. Okay, that's, that's great. And that brings me to ATDC, that's where we met. Right. And you know, what did you identify in the Atlanta landscape when it comes to technology and innovation? Did you, you obviously you see opportunity here what are some of your thoughts around that and where, where we are right now and then where we're going when it comes to innovation in this city and even in the Southeast? Yeah, I mean, Atlanta and Georgia are very close to my heart. Uh, we've lived in the city since um, the early 90s. Both my kids were born here and this, kind of, this city made me successful. And one of my missions coming out of SBI was to start-off initiatives which would give back to the city. Mm-hmm. And um, even though that's kind of how I think from an emotional perspective, as I look at the situation objectively, Atlanta has so many of the ingredients that are required for success in technology. Right? I mean, so many of the Fortune 500 companies are headquartered in Atlanta. Um, there is some amazing um, tech 
talent coming out every year from the likes of Georgia Tech. Right, Just, correct, yeah. Right, and um, lots of uh, real successful entrepreneurs in the city, large corporations, founders of Home Depot, for example, right? They are all role models for people who want to be entrepreneurs. However, Atlanta really has not become the hub for uh, innovation at the early stage level, which is kind of surprising. Mm-hmm. Right? So as I looked into it, I found that one of the big things which is missing is, you know, there's, there are not as many capital providers. The second is that even though, yeah, the city is really, really good to the people that are here, many, many startups after they're founded here, uh, they leave the city. And many uh, successful entrepreneurs and CEOs, founders that have great exits don't come back to the city. Mm-hmm. Right? And so yeah. this is exactly what I was trying to change. And ATDC definitely is the premier organization in the city, which is trying to make the same changes which I had in mind. Yeah, and, that, and that, that's always been fascinating to me with, you know, I've been in the city my entire career as well. And seeing all the Fortune 500 companies that are present and a lot of things going on, but there's always, from the investment standpoint, there's always been a really conservative viewpoint of making investments in early stage companies. I always say it's more a, more of a conservative environment compared to the West Coast, where you read stories of people walking in and you know walking out with a million dollars in uh, in their first investment, and we don't we don't hear those stories as much here, and we we really haven't seen the unicorns that we've seen out on the West Coast as well. We're we're starting to see yeah some of these interesting companies here, but I, I believe just with the environment that we have, and me and you have talked about it uh, lots over the years, there's a lot of synergy here. It's just continuing to bring it to light and really working hard to uh, create these sustainable companies. And, you know, part of what we do at ATDC is just that, trying to create that sustainability so these companies can continue to grow and hopefully stay here and not not move to other areas of the country and uh, and then flourish here and grow. Tell yeah. me a, about Silicon Road Ventures and really the, the idea of it, how it came about. You mentioned this a minute ago about not enough capital, but when, when did that come to your mind saying, wow, there's a real opportunity here to really launch this fund? Yeah, so, you know, Atlanta is changing. Right. I mean, you and I grew up in the city uh, in our careers mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, we have seen I-85 and I-75, you know, add on lanes. <laughs> right. Many, many lanes. Right. Um, but similarly with the startup scene, there has been a lot of evolution and all very good things happening. Right. Lots of new funds. I think ADDC's excellent work has paid off dividends. And, you know, recently we had two uh, unicorns, right? In mm-hmm. the city. Uh, right. And then one trust before that. So yeah, I mean, it's all only good things that you can you can see which are happening in the city. Now, um, there are a couple of things that I realized that uh, are opportunities. So even though this is kind of the early days of venture funding and, um, you know, private equity investing, 
and it's really becoming uh, more and more mainstream as time goes on. Uh, there is definitely uh, a surfeit of small venture funds uh, that are focused um, on, in, which are very generalized in their approach, which are not focused in a specific area. And um, the way I look at the future of venture funding and any kind of private equity is, you know, other than the dollars, there is also uh, the opportunity to bring in expertise, connections, community, and so on. And uh, after what we did at ATDC with the retail tech vertical, I realized that uh, there is definitely the opportunity to create something along those lines, but with a funding angle to it. And so, which is how Silicon Road was born. So Silicon Road, you know, we call it Silicon Road because we think of it as the Silk Road for the Silicon era, the future of commerce. So we are focused on technologies that are impacting or innovating uh, in retail e-commerce and CPG. And um, we are the first in the world to really take on this approach and have had quite a bit of success, even in a bad year like 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what's been amazing is your your plan before 2020 was to, to go out and close the round and, and really begin to start executing. And you have not skipped a beat. You have continued to roll this out, bring on great partners, uh, bring on you know some some awesome staff members that are managing partners and managing directors of your organization. What are some of the, the, the key areas in retail technology right now that you're, you're focused on? There's a lot of buzzwords going on with digital payments and crypto and, and all that. What are some of your, what are you zeroing in on right now when it comes to innovation in that space? Yeah, the way we look at uh, innovation in retail, you know, we have come across, we have built this model based on, uh, you know, literally hundreds of conversations with uh, industry leaders in retail e-commerce, CPG, as well as by studying the market and understanding where the innovation is happening. And we see it in four distinct quadrants and four distinct areas. One of them is uh, in-store technologies, the in uh, you know, whatever happens inside a store, touchless payments being a part of it, but not the only thing. Other aspects to it, such as augmented reality uh, in a store, for example, uh, more robust loyalty programs in store, in person, uh, et cetera. So that is one of them, one of the four areas. The second is what we would call uh, omnichannel commerce. And so that uh, includes all those different areas that we hear about in the news a lot these days, right? Right. So, right. Uh, E-commerce happening on webs, uh, on websites, on uh, or on mobile devices, and then how all these different channels interact. So one of the key problems, which is in retail right now, is to how to create an uniform experience for a customer as the customer goes from channel to channel. Okay. And so any kind of technologies that enable that and make that transition smoother are what we would qualify under omnichannel commerce. The third area is supply chain and logistics. And supply chain and logistics is especially relevant uh, in this area of, uh, in this age of COVID, if you will, because for most businesses and retailers for sure, uh, China used to be one of the big components of their supply chain. And that is no longer the case as much for obvious reasons, right? And so 
<laughs> and so it's, uh, you know, it's just something that everybody has had to deal with. And so this seemingly unbreakable model that had built over the past two or three decades uh, is now being questioned. The other is, um, as the world goes through ups and downs financially, and as the, uh, this country recovers from coronavirus, there are going to be several businesses that are going to go out of business, right, unfortunately. And uh, some of these businesses might define, you know, a key portion of the supply chain for retailers. So in general, retailers have to build redundancy in their supply chains. I think that's the key message here. In addition to, of course, the old problem in the last mile logistics, right, because the big problem that we had prior to COVID was the fact that all our streets were being uh, crowded by these delivery vehicles. Yeah, right. So the answer to um, last mile logistics is important. And then finally, the fourth area for us is um, FinTech and payments, uh, which is relevant to retail. Here, uh, you know, for instance, we have invested in companies that do text by, I mean, pay by text, I'm sorry, uh, and so on and so forth. So all these more innovative ways which are improving the mechanism of payments uh, as it applies to retail are also interesting to us. So, and all of these things are also very important to retailers. So those are the areas in which we see innovation happening in this industry. Yeah, and you had mentioned earlier about the, the crowded roads. I know we've talked about that in the past with delivery vehicles. That brings me to, to drone technology, which you know I've done a lot of research on and, and read about some of the things that UPS and Amazon and those types of companies are talking about. What's the outlook over the next three to five years when it comes to retail utilizing you know, some type of drone technology to deliver packages within the hour? What's your thoughts on that? Oh, no, I, I'll be, uh, Carvet, I'll be very surprised if uh, 2021 ends without um, one of the large e-commerce retailers um, beginning to deliver over the, over the, using drones. So Amazon, as you probably have heard, has the Amazon Prime Air uh, program where they promise to deliver packages less than five pounds in weight within 30 minutes of you placing an order with drone. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Right. UPS is also has very well-publicized programs uh, which are similar in nature. So I think it's um, just around the corner and I think it will pro- totally revolutionize how we think about uh, last mile logistics in general. And, and in general, many other activities, it's not just the delivery of merchandise which are purchased from retailers, but a lot of other activities that prior required either um, in-person interactions or the use of more the more conventional uh, transportation mechanisms will be replaced by drones. I, I fully expect. One thing I'm, I'm interested also is, and I learned about this at your retail symposium a few years ago, was the the physical internet and and how that looking at that, how that's going to affect retail and knowing our buying habits and, and how to make it even more efficient instead of having a big box store with a hundred thousand items in it, you're able to scale it down to more of what people are buying in that area. And it could change from location to location, depending on the, the demographics and, and those types of things. 
that's that's coming to life also and we're you know we're seeing that through through even Amazon and how you can order and then the predictive analytics of them knowing that you're going to buy a product before you buy the product <laughs> just because of your history and in buying habits absolutely so one of the holy grails one of the holy grails for retailers is to figure out demand okay um, and this is a really, really difficult problem to solve, uh, at least before AI. Uh, it was a really difficult problem to solve because at this moment, now we are sitting in February 2021, retailers are making decisions as to what they will sell around Christmas this year. Mm-hmm. Already, right? So this process of trying to determine what is the demand going to be, what are the products most likely to succeed, and how are demographics going to change? You know, they have to do a lot of analysis. And historically, retailers have been doing this pretty much with guesswork. I mean, there's no other way to say it. <laughs> and some of the more savvy ones did look at past year's data and things like that. But that really is also changing so fast these days in terms of who is going to walk into your store, actually. You know, has completely um, made it difficult to do. And that has been one of the reasons why, you know, we have probably all had experiences of going into brick and mortar stores and not finding what we wanted to find. Right. They're just right. doing the wrong things. So the physical internet uh, and Dr. Benoit Montrose program is focused on using machine learning to kind of predict exactly the very thing that Carpet walking into a Best Buy is going to ask for when he goes in there. Right. The specific model that you'll be looking for. And even if they don't have it through um, a SKU rationalization process, provide connections between that specific product and other similar products that will equally meet your need. Okay, so that's the concept. But yeah, I mean, it's one of the biggest breakthroughs which I suspect will come in. Yeah, Yeah, that's amazing. That really is. One of the other interesting things around retail is these big box stores that particularly the older ones that like, and you mentioned Best Buy a minute ago that are changing, they're reducing their footprint, but you know, in the headlines today, we saw they're laying 5,000 full-time employees off at at Best Buy and then bringing on 2000 part-time workers. So they're, they're looking at every way to cut their, their overhead. But one of the interesting pieces to that Forbes article was they're going to take a portion of the store for curbside delivery. So, you know, part of that, that's, we've seen that explode during this pandemic with curbside delivery and a Best Buy using half their space just for people that are buying and picking up and then, really investing the rest of their capital in e-commerce and, and, and trying to have a go at it that way. What, what are some of your thoughts when it comes to these, the malls and repurposing of some of these big box stores? I know Kohl's has done it with Amazon, whereas a, a, you need to take a product back, you take it to Kohl's and they'll, they'll take it back. Do you see that? I, I see that grown, but what are some of your thoughts when it comes to innovation that you're looking at 
specifically in those areas? I, I, I believe that by the end of this year, we'll have some new stars in retail and they will have to have a very significant brick and mortar play in order to be successful. You know, what you said a minute ago about Best Buy. So I just wanted to go back there for a minute because the other news from Best Buy was they just had their most successful quarter um, in terms of quarter over, quarter over quarter growth for the last several years. Okay, so wow. even though they laid off some people in the store and like you said, they are beginning to expand in e-commerce. The, the lesson to be learned from this is that it's not that all brick and mortar is dead and gone. It's that the ones that actually smartly play their advantages, play to their advantages, such as having these uh, really accessible brick and mortar locations and use them well for things like fulfillment by converting part of their stores into dark stores. Right. Not only for fulfillment. I mean, those are, those are the ones that will succeed. Now, there are certain categories of merchandise that are more likely to be bought online. Um, one of the things that COVID has done is made us less resistant to buying certain categories of merchandise online. I mean, most notably grocery, right? But um, there's definitely going to be also a um, rationalization of this beyond 2020, where you know we really could not go into any store. So there will be some emerging uh, success stories coming from the brick and mortar world. Now the whole department store, the mall model might be challenged the once and years to come. But in general, I think that there'll be new format brick and mortar stores that will have a lot of success. And uh, you know, like you said, the ones which are able to plan their merchandise very well and keep the right SKUs in, in their stores and don't just expand just because they can, uh, I think will be successful. It's uh, yeah, the, the mall scenario has been interesting to see. We have all these malls and they pretty much have been popular my entire life. And you go there, you shop, Christmas shop, and you, you see people you know, but then the whole evolution of the downturn of the mall and then it moving to more of an outdoor mall like we have around our area, like the Avalon and, and some of those things. I always wondered, you know, like the Avalon, I'd rather walk inside on a pretty day. I'd like to be outside, but on days that it's raining or cold or middle of the summer, I'd rather be inside walking around if I have to do shopping. And I guess it's just the evolution of, e-commerce and you know all of those components together which has essentially created that downturn of that humongous mall that building and you know all the dozens of stores that are inside of it you know one of the things that i think is interesting and i read this in another i think it was in the in the journal talking about utilizing live stream and using social commerce for uh, retail and Macy's is doing some testing around that. So basically, uh, imagine home shopping network on live stream. Yeah. So they're, they're selling product, you know, real time. That is interesting just because I, I've seen several companies come through that have technologies utilizing live stream and using social platforms. And they use an example of Oprah Winfrey selling 
some of her product, one of her clothing line and her pulling herself up on her phone and walking into one of the stores and featuring her line and people able to buy it right then real time and how she would sell out, you know, on a, on a outfit just, or a pair of shoes within, you know, two minutes. Yeah. Do you see more of that coming obviously? And what, what are some of the opportunities I think that haven't been, or make it easier. What are some of your thoughts on that? Just candidly about, do you see that as just a, a, a trend or, or something that could be used in, in you know, to, to really be mainstream, that type of technology? And the most important thing here is that, um, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have a choice except to go to a mall if you wanted to buy a pair of shoes, for example, right? Today, we can buy it all online or on our cell phones. So if it is just buying merchandise where I don't need to interact with anybody or seek any advice, then I am likely to buy it online. Mm-hmm. However, if uh, the brick and mortar retailer is able to create an experience for me, which goes beyond the merchandise that I'm looking to buy, then I'm likely to go into a brick and mortar location. And that experience can be in the form of social interactions. It can be in the form of getting feedback from peers or from experts. It might be in the form of getting training or classes on how to use the merchandise as I buy it, and so on and so forth. So the lesson to be learned, which I'm sure many retailers are going to take up, is um, that for their customers to be attracted into their stores, they have to create a better experience for them. So you know, as I've told you this before, Carvet, we are willing to pay five bucks for a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Right. But we are really not paying it for the coffee. We are paying it for the experience of going into a clean store and uh, and then really sit down there and bring the coffee with probably a business associate. So that's that's the kind of approach that every retailer has to take. So it's not that malls are dead, but they will have to be repurposed to kind of uh, really reflect that experiential retail which everyone is asking for. And I know one of the one of the things that I was reading was talking about the potential acquisition of Amazon buying Sears. Yeah, and uh, Sears or J.C. Penney's, one of those uh, you know old retailers. But the, the main purpose of that was really to use the actual footprint as a distribution center and because they have them in, in all the local malls. And I thought that was an interesting strategy that they were doing, looking at the landscape as a whole and taking advantage of, you know, really underperforming assets that are there that they could use to build out, continue to build out their infrastructure uh, for delivery because that's – their main focus is knowing what you want to buy and then getting it to you within a short amount of time or on that continuous uh, cycle of you buying it every month and then just ding your card. So that, that was interesting with the pandemic. What are some of the long-term effects on retail that you see immediately right now? Oh, yeah. So the short-term impact on retail was, um, you know, obviously 
a lot of stores had to shut down uh, temporarily. They had to furlough their employees. Um, you know, they had to worry about the healthy reopening of their stores. I'm talking about brick and mortar right now. Mm-hmm. Correspondingly, there was a huge upswing in e-commerce. So those were what happened immediately as COVID hit us in 2020. As stores are emerging out of it, uh, what happened is people have also seen that there is going to be uh, a lot of demand back. So many of the people that I have connections with within retail, uh, they have been telling me that uh, the later part of 2020 and even 2021 have seen upswings like never before in their careers. And this because there is this pent up demand, there's a lot of liquidity because of the cash uh, payments being made by the government. The savings rates of Americans are higher than, you know, several decades and they want to spend the money, you know, by <laughs> <laughs> keeping money in the bank, right? Being Americans. Yeah. So, um, I think that there is definitely going to be a lot of upswing, but in general, it has definitely resulted in a big change in the way people think. And um, one is that people, like I told you earlier, will be looking for better experiences, not just in terms of learning, et cetera, like and socializing and so on and so forth, but also a more um, healthy experience in the sense that irrespective of whether the vaccine comes or not, at least for the next say, five years, people are going to be extremely careful and afraid of doing all those activities in the same manner that we did in the past. Okay, so if you're a restaurant, for example, and you want to have buffets, you have to be very thoughtful as to how you design that, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, you know, you don't want multiple people touching the same serving spoons. Right? So that that is one, one example, but also there are many others like that. So in retail, things like touchless payments, attendantless shopping, uh, just such as Amazon Go and versions of that, all of those become very important. Secondly, um, you know, within supply chain, like I told you, retailers have to start thinking about how they change, you know, create redundancies within the supply chain, make sure that they're never surprised again in the future. And with all the technology available right now, I'm sure that they will start doing that, uh, at least the ones that are successful and their last mile delivery. So there's a lot that's going to happen in the next several years with retail and the innovation um, that is happening in that space will play a big role in it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there. This is sort of off the script. What do you, what do you do to avoid burnout? Cause I know your schedule goes nonstop. So how do you avoid the burnout that can come with just a, you know, running hundred miles an hour all the time? That's a very interesting question. So, um, yeah, in my prior career with uh, SPI, uh, that was a real problem. I had to really worry about it. And I did feel burnt out several times. This time around, though, you know, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, Carpet. I, um, even though I'm working hard, I don't think of it as work as much. I, you know, I joke that it is the excitement without the anxiety, mm-hmm. which typically comes with startups. So, uh, I mean, you know, but to your point, I I think it's very important to focus on relationships that are important to you uh, and which people probably ignored, uh, people ignored during their careers, uh, you know, with with family and friends and building some 
hobbies, taking care of yourself. So these are all things that you know I'm doing a lot more aggressively now. And so I don't feel the need for, even though we have been very successful and we are moving really fast, I don't feel that I'm burning out per se. So, I mean, I guess maybe the answer to your question is that I'm taking a lot of preventive steps all the time. For example, you know, and you and I have talked about this, about working out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Kettlebells. <laughs> exactly. Kettlebells. <laughs> That those those things are really really helpful. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my my outlet is doing that to sort of burn off any type of stress, but sort of keep my mind straight and and moving in a positive direction. When it when it comes, I know we talked about North America for for Silk and Road Ventures. Tell me about India and your ventures there. Yeah, so in the U.S., uh, we have raised a full fund. This fund focuses only on U.S.-based companies. Uh, we have made 10 investments, uh, investments in 10 startups, 12 investments, actually. This part is going very well. In India, we have been running an accelerator for uh, startups which are much earlier stage. Lots of great promise there. The startup ecosystem is not as mature as in the United States. And we have five companies in our portfolio right now in India. And that's completely separate though. Even though it is called Silicon Road India, it's mm. not a part of this fund. The hope is that um, as we mature on both sides of the ocean, we are going to be able to um, get eligible startups from our Indian ecosystem over to the US for investments here for this and future funds. That, that's neat. And that's, that's one of the things I loved about Silk and Row was the India connection, everything on the ground there and the build out that you were doing. When was the last time you were able to make it over to India with all the travel restrictions? Wow. I came back almost exactly a year ago. Carbet, I was back here on March 1st and right before. You know. Yeah, I think that was one of the last times, I, that was the last time we saw each other in person. You came into my office right when you got back. That's right, that's right, yep. <laughs> wow. Amazing. I know that I've seen that with you know a lot of the corporates that I work with, even the uh, Department of Defense, just travel is non-existent. No one's uh, going anywhere. So we're, we're doing everything virtual, so. But I, I see that you know, things are more productive. I'm able to get a lot more done because I'm not traveling somewhere or, or waiting for somebody to fly in to meet with. Well, you work hard. Um, you're self-motivated. Uh, you know, you're doing a lot of really good stuff. So um, there are people probably that are not in your boat, but uh, I, I hear you, man. I mean, people that are able to actually work without any external stimulus. I mean, for them, this has been very productive. Well, how can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, we, they can send me an email. Uh, it's sid at siliconroad.vc. Um, they can connect with me, of course, on LinkedIn or um, Twitter, which is Mukherjee, M-O-K-E-R-J-I, even on Facebook. So definitely there are lots of different ways to get in touch with me. That's good. Well, Sid, thank you so much for your time and uh, digging into this. I definitely want to have you back to dig in deeper on the innovation side, on the, the retail and really the future and some of the things that, you know, I, I, I sort of love 
Elon Musk and those types of personalities that are thinking big down the road <laughs> of what things could be, you know, like the electric car or, or flying to Mars, you know, some of his big ticket thoughts that he's able to make into reality. And you know, looking down and, you know, I mentioned Bitcoin earlier, Tesla buying $1.5 billion in, in Bitcoin. That's a topic I'm interested in because I, I believe that is going, cryptocurrency is going to happen in some way, shape or form. And it may just be using the core technology, but it, we're going to be using it. But before then, the government's going to have to you know, put his blessing on it. So that's a whole other topic for another discussion. Thank you again. I look forward to uh, having you on again and uh, good luck with Silicon Road. Thank you, Carbet.